BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. I've been looking forward to releasing this episode for weeks now. Earlier this summer, I got to talk to one of my favorite researchers in the sound and health space. Nina Kraus is a neuroscientist who has done groundbreaking research on sound and hearing for more than three decades. She's the Hugh Knowles Professor of Neurobiology, Communication Sciences, and Otolaryngology at Northwestern University. She's been a frequent guest on my other podcast, Cadence, What Music Tells Us About the Mind. And she's just released her first trade book called Of Sound Mind, How Our Brain Constructs a Meaningful Sonic World. It's a culmination of all of her research and experiences, and it was really wonderful to talk to her about it. She also has a really great website called Brain Volts where you can find a treasure trove of information about music and sound and the brain. Nina Krauss, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Glad to be here. So this book that you've just published of Sound Mind is such a wonderful compilation of so many decades of work. I have to say it was such a pleasure to read through all the different ways in which you've pulled together the different aspects of what your lab brain volts does and into this sort of larger picture that you call the sound mind. So I want to start there and ask you to sort of give us a sense of the, why is it a sound mind rather than just sort of like the neuroscience of sound? So the auditory system, the hearing brain is vast and, you know, it is, I mean, everybody is, is, familiar with the idea that, you know, we, we hear through our ears. You know, many of us think we hear very much with our brains. You know, even people who think about hearing and the hearing brain, they think about the classic auditory pathway kind of from ear to brain and back and forth without really considering how vast the hearing brain is. So the hearing brain engages how we think, how we feel, how we move, 
how we incorporate information from our other senses. Thus, all of this makes up the sound mind, um, you know, in, in, in fancy neuroscience jargon, you know, we, we call it hearing engages the cognitive sensory motor and reward circuitry. And, and it, it really does. And uh, so for that reason, it is vast. And our sound mind is a concept that really engages very much of us. And I, I think that, you know, we often don't recognize how important sound is and how vast the sound mind, in fact, really is. You know, I think I wanted to start here because I think it's really important for us to understand that this is a modern view of sound. And and so often it is just pulled apart into various features like pitch or, you know, timbre or amplitude and or how the sound is being used. So language versus music. And then even within those realms, it gets further reduced. And what what your book really does beautifully, I think, is to show how sound has so many different ways in which it influences us, our thought processes, our behavior, our emotions, our experiences, and that it is it has to be considered an integral part of how we experience the world. And yet it's also highly subjective. So one of the first things that you say is that every individual experiences sound differently. That's exactly right. And because our sonic experience and our sonic memories make us us. Yeah, you mean you describe one of the first or some of the earliest childhood memories of uh, of, of listening to your mama play the piano. Is that sort of what triggered your interest in this field to begin with? Well, I think it was part of it. You know, as uh, you're, you're a scientist, uh, you, the, the whole idea of converging evidence and uh, so they're they're just converging influences forces in in my life and one was you know i i i grew up in a house where more than one language was spoken um my mom was a pianist you know so i think i i must have had a sense early on that the world that i was interested in engaging with uh lived in the world of sound and, uh, you know, so, so from, from there, you know, I, I, when I went to college, I, I majored in comparative literature first because, you know, I knew some languages and I liked to read. And it was in college that I, I, I took a, um, a biology class and then I uh, came across a book by Eric Lenberg called uh, The Biological Bases of Language. And I thought, whoa, this is possible. You know, that, that, that my, my interest in language and sound could be married with my then budding interest in biology that really captured my imagination. And so, you know, initially I, I, I really was interested in, in, you know, how the brain processes sound at a single cell level, at a multi-cell level, at a population level, at an individual person level. It was a portal. It was a way that I could marry my interests and also keep developing. Because as I, as I said, I, I initially started, I was thinking a lot about language. And then, uh, you know, it turns out that 
one of the things that's involved with language is that we learn language and we interact with people with language. And so, you know, I found myself studying auditory learning. So learning through sound. And um, as you know very well, Andre, music is a marvelous model for learning through sound. And, 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 and that's one that I think also it's easy for people to understand if I say the sound mind consists of our cognitive and sensory motor and reward networks, you know, certainly you can imagine how music is, is the jackpot in engaging all of those systems through sound. And I, I definitely want to get to music, but one thing I wanted to, to sort of ask you to illustrate for us that caught my eye is that, you know, you now teach this biological foundations of speech and music class, which you um, mentioned in your book as one of your favorite classes to teach. And you have a favorite demonstration in that class um, that involves a sound clip of a sentence that sounds like just garbled static. And so I will ask the class, there's actually amidst this noise, there is a sentence, see if you can pick it out. And, you know, I, I just draw blank faces after they listen to the clip. And then I play the sentence to them just by itself. Then they hear the original sound clip. The juice of lemons makes fine punch. At that point, as you know, you, you all who are listening can hear uh, the sentence just pops right out of the noise. And so the demonstration, the aha moment there is, in fact, what we know about sound influences how we make sense of it. And that to me is it's, it's, a, it's a great demonstration, too, of, you know, what I think of as the only correct and scientifically correct answer to the philosophical question you know, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Because, of course, in, in my understanding, in my, in my way of thinking, sound is something that only exists if there's a brain to create it. Otherwise, you just have air molecules moving. Well, uh, you know, we, 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 can, we can get into the, into the philosophy because I, I, I really love to think about this and, and, and partly... Uh, I think what makes the sound mind and the whole topic of sound and the brain so interesting is that it does fundamentally cross different disciplines like uh, theology and 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 philosophy uh, as well as biology and 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 I more and more have been really thinking about I think one of the essences of sound is that sound connects us. And so, you know, if, if, if I'm knocking down a tree and, you know, I'm hearing the sound and, you know, there, there's kind of this reciprocity, this back and forth of the sound and this thing. And, it, you know, it connects us as people, but it also connects us to the world. You know, if you think about from, from an evolutionary standpoint, hearing is, is one of the most fundamental senses. And, uh, you know, there, there are, are vertebrates that are are blind, but not deaf. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we need to know the sounds that are around us. And are they, you know, going to eat us? Can we eat them? Can, uh, is this something, something uh, I can mate with? So sound is tremendously important for our connection 
with each other and with the world. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think, too, of kind of um, one of the things that I've been working on a, a topic is how people who cannot hear or who do not hear and they develop a sign, sign language, whether it's American Sign Language or, or another sign language, that the way that they think is also different, that it's not just a matter of like, you know, translating words. It's a whole way of thinking that is different. And so I wondered if you might talk a little bit about this relationship between sound and learning and how it just affects, you know, these fundamental ways in which we think. Yeah, I mean, you know, a really good example. It doesn't have to be as as, as profound as as learning sign, sign language and being deaf, but just um, speaking another language. Um, you know, we're, we're able to communicate all kinds of things in one language that you can't as well in another. You know, one of the the, the most classic examples of how we hear with our sound mind is Beethoven. Beethoven was was deaf when he composed some of the most beautiful pieces we have the the good fortune to be able to listen to and and maybe even play a little you know so so our senses are really quite interrelated and interrelated also with what we know how we feel about the sounds that we're hearing um how we move i mean movement is enormous i mean you know i, I wouldn't be we wouldn't be talking, you and I, if we weren't moving our vocal folds and our mouths. And uh, I mean, and I'm Italian, so I'm I'm moving all of me. <laughs> and uh, and and sound inherently is sound is motion. It's the motion of molecules. So all of these things are um, are really interrelated. And 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 you know, some of the principles. I mean, I think sound is particularly powerful. But um, you know, another example I can give you is is uh, my son Nick, who owns a couple of restaurants in New York, and he's a, a, an amazing chef, and he is uh, life threateningly allergic to dairy products, and yet his knowledge of um, of food and cooking is so deep. He makes some of the the the, the most glorious custards <laughs> that, um, that that you've tasted. Wow. It's amazing to think about that. You know, you in the book say that if you could have one superpower, you would choose to be able to speak any language. So I wonder if you could tell us about that choice. Oh, boy. Uh, you know, I mean, the language we speak connects us to each other in a way that hardly anything else can. It's it's just this this tremendous way of engaging with another person. And, uh, you know, in, in the book, I, I talk about um, another book, the book written by Trevor Noah, uh, Born a Crime, where uh, he uh, grew up uh, in South Africa speaking a number of, of different languages. And the languages were associated with different groups of kids um, some were, were black and some were white and some were a combination of, of, of the two. And depending on what was going on, he would gravitate to one or the other group, which often were, were segregated even, you know, by choice on, 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 on a playground. And, uh, you know, he would just show himself up as a member of the other group 
But the minute he spoke the common language, he was in. So, so I would love to be, you know, there's so many times when I'm, I'm listening to people and they're speaking a language I don't understand and, and uh, or even a language that I wish I understood better. You know, so, you know, I, I speak Italian well, but um, my Spanish is not so great, but I, I really do understand a lot of what's going on. And when I hear people speaking Spanish, you know, I just, I wish I could just jump into it and, and, and have that be part of the conversation that I'm just a teeny bit a part of because I sort of know maybe the subject they're talking about. So the, the language we speak is, is, is huge and the languages that we learn I think is huge uh, and the way that it develops speaking another language and many people speak many languages that really develops our sound mind in a healthy manner. It helps us be able to to communicate. We're most interested, I think, or we're tremendously interested in being able to communicate with each other. And if you speak other languages, not only can you naturally communicate in those languages that you speak, but even as a speaker of your native language, you have developed your sound mind in a way that your brain automatically picks up on cues in sound that are important for understanding any sound. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. And there's another way, of course, that um, sound connects us, and that is through music. I mean, we sometimes call it as so- social glue, and you know, even the the attachment hormone oxytocin is involved when we're listening to music. And so, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about sort of synchronization and the connective power of music. Well, you said synchronization, so one of the the first things that I think about is uh, is rhythm. And rhythm, of course, is a fundamental component of, of music. But, you know, people don't often realize how important rhythm is in language. And, of course, rhythm is, is tremendously, I mean, just if you just 
think of how I'm speaking to you now. I, I have, uh, you know, these 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 changes in the rhythm of my speech that help you figure out what words are important, and uh, it, it, the, the the rhythm of speech helps us fill in the gaps when you're in a noisy place. So you follow that the the, the rhythm and the contour. So you know through through rhythm. Uh, that is one of the ways in which music is so strong, and and there isn't just rhythm. Uh, so one of one of the ways in which I uh, was proven wrong as a scientist was, you know, we we, we did an, uh, we're doing a number of experiments in the lab that involve rhythm, and we have many different rhythm tasks. And my assumption was that if you were good at one kind of rhythm task, you'd be good at another kind of rhythm task. And I was wrong, 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 wrong. (laughs) And it, it turns out that if you think of two fundamental components of rhythm, so, you know, one is, is, is the beat or the pulse, which in music is noted by the, the, the time signature. So one, two, three, one, where's the one? So that's, that's your beat. And then there is the rhythmic pattern, which is the duration of notes and rests within measures. So if you, again, if you, if you, you, you take the example of shave and a haircut bits, that is the rhythmic pattern. And the rhythmic pulse is shave and a haircut two bits, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So these are two different things. And it, turns out that they rely on different forms of brain synchronization. So, you know, when, when you listen to, well, when you measure brain activity in response to sound within the brain activity, there are faster and slower rhythms. And, you know, it, it turns out that the pulse is tied with very, very fast, exquisitely precise brain rhythms Whereas the pattern, which you might imagine because it unfolds over time, that's more, uh, it unfolds over a longer pattern. So, you know, you're talking about tens of milliseconds and seconds for the pattern, but you're talking microseconds for the pulse. You know, you need need to be precise when you hit the cymbal on your drum. Um, You've got to get that exactly right. So... You know, knowing that there are these different rhythm intelligences and that there are different ways in which we can perform these tasks, because what we learned is that um, you cannot predict by how well a person is able to do rhythm pattern tasks, how well he'll be able to do rhythm pulse tasks and, and, and vice versa. And, and, you know, this has been shown um, this, it's in the literature. It's been shown, especially in in uh, brain lesions, that there it, it has been reported that people with particular brain region lesions can retain the ability to, to to follow a pulse, but lose the ability to follow a pattern, and vice versa. So there was this this dissociation in the literature. But but this is in in typically severe brain injury. But in it, it turns out that in in just the normal typical our our daily intersection with rhythm and our typical rhythm skills, there is this dissociation between rhythm pulse and rhythm pattern. And I, I think one of the reasons 
that music is so good at strengthening language skills, strengthening memory skills, cognitive skills, is because it inherently engages the rhythmic pulse with the time signature and the pattern with note durations. You know, I think a lot of people are used to seeing images of the brain with these colors indicating activity and not as familiar with the kinds of brain measures that you use in your lab to get at some of these, some of this information. And so I, I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about, you know, some of these, these tools that you use, especially EEG and the way the markers of um, what's happening in the brain that seem to be particularly important in, in how we understand the sound mind. Yeah. Well, thanks for asking that. Um, you know, I've, I've spent uh, decades searching for the best way to access the sound mind, to access sound processing in the brain. And, you know, I, I have looked and I still, we still have um, uh, models in the lab where we look at the activity of individual neurons. We look at the activity of, of, of groups of neurons. And what we are able to do is um, by, in, in people, you know, ultimately you really want to have the kind of precision that you have at the cellular level in an animal model where you're, you have an electrode in a particular, in a cell, you want to have that kind of precision in humans. And it turns out that if you put sensors on, on the scalp, just uh, scalp electrodes, and you deliver sound through earbuds um, or through speakers, um, the brain will create electrical activity. I mean, as I'm talking to you now, the neurons in your brain that respond to sound are producing electricity, and we can capture that. And we have figured out a way to capture it with remarkable precision. The methodology that we really um, you know, think has given us tremendous insight is something that we call the FFR, the frequency following response. What we are able to do is to capture well, th think of this. So sound itself has elements in it that are very fast and very slow, and they change over time with remarkable precision that we're not even aware of. And of course, our brain has to make sense of this thing called sound, which has so many components and consists of ingredients, some of which are very, very precise and occur in a very in fractions of seconds. So, you know, we need to be able to capture the brain's response to this very complex sound. And, and we've been, we've really been able to do that. So, you know, we've, we've really been able to not only capture the response and, and, you know, the, the, the response to sound is so precise that you can actually play back the response to a sound, and it will resemble the actual sound itself that the person was listening to. So, you know, so one huge thing was being able to actually capture the brain's response to sound with the kind of precision that sound demands. And then given that ability, you know, there's so many questions to, to ask, like, you know, is there a signature in the processing of sound that aligns itself with people who make music? 
is there a signature that aligns itself with people who uh, speak multiple languages? Is there a signature that aligns itself with the athlete brain? Are there signatures that align themselves um, as we get older? Are there signatures that align themselves in, in, in a child that has been linguistically deprived? Can we tell? Because the brain's response to sound is so fundamental to who a person is and how they make sense of the world, if you can figure out what are the strengths and weaknesses of a person's ability to hear the details in sound, you have information that tells you a lot about uh, you know, what particular activities do to people as a group. And you know, the, the holy grail really is the individual. You know, can we tell? And and you know, we're getting we're getting pretty good at being able to. Uh, you know, I can measure your brain activity to sounds, Andre, and I, I I'm certain I can tell that that you spend a, a good amount of time making music. Yeah, I, I hope that's true of, of my FFR and my brain response uh, because I certainly spend a lot of time doing it. You know, and I think you know it just. So that our audience knows the answer to the, all those questions that you posed, uh, you know, is there a signature for the athlete brain or the bilingual brain or so forth is, of course, yes. Um, and you found those signatures. And the one that I wanted to ask you a little bit about, because then I think you've also done some really great work to show how certain types of musical training can overcome challenges in childhood is the response to um, sound in a child who, uh, you know, as you as you call it, was ling- linguistically deprived, um, which often correlates with with poverty. Yeah. So, you know, we have have an index of, of poverty is often tracked by maternal education, um, which makes me uncomfortable, basically. But it, 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 it is something that makes me uncomfortable because there are so many parents who don't have, or mothers who do not have a formal education, who have tremendously linguistically rich experiences for themselves and for their kids. But the idea of uh, linguistic deprivation as indexed by maternal education is something that um, has been around for years. And and so what one of the things that, that we ended up doing was uh, as we were working in low-income um, schools, in schools in low-income areas, we divided the kids based on their mother's education. And this was in a number of Chicago area schools. And so the kids whose moms had more and less education um, were in the same classroom. They had the same teachers. And what we found was, you know, we, we dubbed this the neural signature of sound processing, the neural signature of poverty, which consists especially of a decrease in the precision with which the harmonics or the timbre of sounds are processed. Now, you know, the the harmonics are what enable us to distinguish one letter from another, a D and a B. You know, they are distinguished largely on their, their acoustic harmonics. And so this ability is depressed in the in the kids whose moms had less education we also found that how consistently the brain responds to the same sound was reduced so kids whose moms had less education had 
brain responses to sound that were that were jittered, that were less consistent from time to time. So, you know, if you can imagine if, if I'm saying a word and your brain is responding differently to that same word every time, you know, how, how is a child to learn? And then there were aspects of timing, of precise timing that we saw were reduced. Now, what is the, 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 the beautiful side of this story is that the very ingredients that are diminished in this signature of poverty are the ingredients of sound processing that are strengthened by making music. Yeah, amazing. Uh, it's just, you know, so so the solution for a lot of these kids is learn to make music. Indeed. And being bilingual helps. So the bilingual and the musician signature are, are, are somewhat different, but they both uh, enhance different aspects of sound that are important for, for language. And, you know, in, in these studies, what we have found is that kids who um, were speakers of two languages, and they were primarily Spanish-speaking kids, that helped offset the poverty signature. I mean, I think it's a really interesting implication because I think a lot of parents, when they come to a new country, um, they almost prohibit their children from speaking their native language in the hopes that they will assimilate faster. Uh, but what your research suggests is that, in fact, the, having the dual language is in some ways protective of some of the effects that uh, poverty can can wreck on kids' brains. Absolutely. Well, Nina Krauss, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. I want to remind our listeners uh, that her book Of Sound Mind, How Our Brain Constructs a Meaningful Sonic World is now available at booksellers everywhere. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, but especially uh, having just gone through this, this just wonderful catalog of all the different ways in which your different projects have come together into a comprehensive theory or, or understanding of the sound mind. And could you just tell our listeners, too, where they can find out more about your work and your BrainVolts website? Oh, absolutely. So uh, our website is BrainVolts. So it's www.brainvolts.northwestern.edu. And uh, that, that website is, is, it is a labor of love. We update it every day. We are so interested in communicating our little discoveries to anybody who is interested. And it turns out that people from all over the, all over the places and, uh, and, and, you know, parents, teachers, scientists uh, want to uh, know more about the sound mind. Um, we have constructed a little website tour. So on the homepage, you can just take the website tour, which is a two-minute tour that it's a little video that will help you find what you're looking for because there's a lot on there. And the other thing that I, I want you to notice, well, there are two things. One is, is if you look at the homepage, first of all, you'll see a, a lot of images of different things. So you'll see images of, of aging and autism and hearing and noise, reading, music, bilingualism. Um, so there are these, these images, and on the one hand, well, you might wonder, well, what are they doing at Brain Vaults? Because it's so many different <laughs> things, and it's all under the umbrella of sound and the brain. So this is why sound and the brain and the sound mind is so important. But I want to bring out the art in science 
And, and my book uh, has, it has 80 illustrations, many of which were drawn in partnership with um, an artist that I've been working with for many years. And, and you know, there is such beauty and art in science that I hope you'll enjoy. Right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. And also, if this topic is of interest, check out my other podcast, Cadence, What Music Tells Us About the Mind, available wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Lemaster, and Charles Blyle. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.